Hello everyone and welcome to Singularity One-on-One. Singularity One-on-One is a podcast feature of Singularity Weblog where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. As you already may know, my name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and as always, I am the man with the questions. Today, my guest on the show is Sonia Arison. I met Sonia Arison while I was at the Summer Graduate Studies Program at Singularity University, where she is one of the co-founders uh, and the trustees. So without further ado, let me welcome Sonia to Singularity One-on-One. Welcome, Thanks, Sonia. Nicola. Happy to be here. Fantastic. So, Sonia, I like to start my interviews a little bit uh, further back from the very beginning, if you will, with this kind of a general question. How did you get interested in technology and why? Oh, well, that goes back a long way. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I got super interested in technology when I was in graduate school. Uh, I, I'm Canadian, and uh, I was going to the University of British Columbia. And uh, I, was, I was in the political science program, uh, but one of my friends was in the computer science department, and they were doing a, a demo day, and they needed volunteers. And he said to me, oh, you know, we don't have any women, it's all men, you know, it would be so great if we could have a woman come and help with, you know, because it balanced things out. And I said, sure, no problem, I'll, I'll be there, so what do I have to do? And he's like, well, there's this thing called the World Wide Web. <laughs> and uh and it's really easy to use and I'll show you how to how to use it and then and then you can you can show everyone else. And I said, "Okay, sure, that that sounds fun." And uh and that was the beginning of my of my love of technology. I saw the web for the first time <laughs> back in uh gosh. Uh when was that? Uh that would have been well, uh mid mid 90s. That's very interesting because originally I am also a political science student, by the way. Um, wow. So I, I also ended up uh, very interested in the technological singularity. So let me ask you, how did you make the transition from political science and technology in general and especially in issues related to the technological singularity? Right. Uh, well, after I graduated from grad school, I, I went to work at a think tank and um and a public policy think tank and so i spent most of my time working on public policy issues and during that time of course the internet became a huge phenomenon and changed our lives and so that became part of the the public discussion and i think because of my interest anyway and because it was changing the world so much uh it really it was a natural thing for me to weave uh We've technology policy uh, in into my my research agenda, and so uh, and then I worked at a foundation, and then uh, I wound up coming down to California because there was a position at a think tank down here called uh, Pacific Research Institute. They needed a director for their technology, their brand new technology program, in uh, in 1997, and uh, and back then uh, I was super interested in encryption, and the Clipper chip was a big deal, and I mean you know so much has happened uh, since then, but. Uh, that's that's how I really got focused on technology policy was when I when I moved down to California, and um, and then really started to get to know people in Silicon Valley, and uh, and but I didn't discover transhumanism uh, and issues about the singularity until later. It wasn't until uh, probably 2004 
when when I was writing a column for uh, a website called Tech Central Station that actually doesn't exist anymore, but I was writing a weekly column, and I was always looking for good ideas, you know, uh, it had to have something to do with technology and, and politics, uh, or uh, technology and society. And uh, and one day, I, I was looking for a topic, I couldn't find anything. I came home, I just flipped on the TV, kind of in desperation. <laughs> and it was at the beginning of the era of, of reality TV, one of the very first reality TV shows called The Swan. I don't know if you remember that one. Uh, but it was one of these extreme makeover, it was before extreme makeovers, but it was an extreme makeover type of show where, you know, people who were overweight and um, uh, didn't look that great would be transformed during the show. They'd get cosmetic surgery and, you know, the new teeth even, and, and they'd lose weight and, they, you know, and they'd get better clothes and better hairstyles and all of that. And so at the end, they'd be these gorgeous swans, right? That's what it was called, the swan. And uh, And I flipped it on sort of near the end of the program, actually, I didn't watch the whole thing, but there were two people sitting on the edge of a bed, a man and a woman, and they flipped on their pre, pre-swan pre photo and then their post-swan photo, and, and they, were, they were crying because they were so happy that they were able to change their lives. And uh, and I really was, I got super interested in that. I mean, I, I, was, I re- was really touched by this, that, you know, here are these two people they felt like they couldn't do anything with their life before. They went on the show, and now they've really transformed themselves, and they were so happy. And they were talking about how they had more confidence, and this really was transformative for them. And that really touched me, and I thought, you know, I wonder... So that that was an example of people using technology to change their lives. I mean, it's cosmetic technology, but it's still technology. And I thought, you know, I wonder what else you could do. What else could you do to change to change your life, to change yourself? And that got me searching. I think I probably stayed up all night that night uh, scouring the web for things that you could do to change yourself using technology. And I discovered transhumanism. Um, and, of course, a lot of the folks involved in the singularity movement are, are part of the transhumanist movement. And, and uh, I was fascinated. It was, it, there's just so much out there and so many exciting things. And, and that was really how I got interested in, in the transhumanist stuff. And then that, of course, led to my interest in regenerative medicine. So uh, maybe that's a long answer to your question, but, but there it's, it is. A, it's a very excellent answer. And, and I have to say, I, I just did a terrible disservice to you because I, I only made probably a three-word introduction uh, to my guest. And so um, I would like to move on to the main reason why I invited you to be on my show here today. And, and it is um, your fantastic book called uh, 100 plus uh, I just finished reading the book and I enjoyed it immensely so um, among many other things I should have said that you're the author of, of a fantastic book uh, exploring how the coming age of longevity will is. change everything <laughs> yes from careers and relationships to family and, and faith so let's jump into the uh, the meat of the matter here and let me ask you this um, what in your own words, is your book about? My book is about how science and technology can allow us to live longer and healthier lives. Not just longer, but healthier lives. And then once that happens, then what? How does society change? How does the economy change? How do, how do our family lives change? How does even religion evolve? Uh, and so that's, uh, that's the rest of the story. I mean, I think a lot of people have written the story about how technology is... Uh, advancing and how we'll be living longer and healthier, but 
there's a, another part to that story. Well, so what? Then what? Right? Then what happens? And um, and I went about answering that question in, in a few different ways. Uh, one of the ways is that I went back in time and said, you know, look, life expectancy in 1850 was 43. Today it's around 80 years. We've already roughly doubled our life expectancy once. What, so what if we do it again? Let, let's see. Are there any lessons? Are there any um, things that we can learn from the last time around uh, when, when that happened? And, and so that was one of the things I did in, uh, in each of these different areas in terms of the economy, uh, family life, the environment, what happens to the environment when we, when we live longer and healthier, uh, religion. And, uh, and then I have a chapter on, on the ethics. Should we even be going there? Is this, is this unnatural? Is it, you know, uh, is this a goal that we should be chasing after? Um, and then I and then I end with a chapter on who's leading us uh, leading us there. So that's sort of a summary of the book, quickly. Excellent. So let's let's start with with the title. Why call it one hundred plus? Why not call it, for example, I don't know, one thousand plus or ten thousand plus? Why stop at one hundred then? Well, yeah, that's a good question because we don't have to necessarily stop there, do we? Uh, I chose that because the, prem the premise that the book's based on is a life expectancy of 150, a rough doubling of where we are today. Uh, because I think, you know, in, in interviewing the scientists uh, uh, during my research and, and from all the reading I did, I, I think that that's something that is achievable during my lifetime. I, I think that we will get to the first person to live to 150 uh, will happen during my lifetime. I'm not sure that we're going to go beyond that during my lifetime, so I wanted to keep it, uh, I wanted to keep it real. I wanted this to be a book solidly based in reality and not on science fiction. Because, for example, in the, uh, foreword or the very introduction of the book by Peter, Peter Theo, he says, the time has come for death to die. Yes. So how do you view uh, or what do you want to say about a statement like that, which is in the opening pages of the book as the foreword uh, written by Peter Thiel? Peter, Peter did come? such a great job on that foreword. You know, uh, the book got reviewed in the Wall Street Journal, and uh, the guy, and they gave us a great review, and the guy who reviewed it uh, on his blog later said, you know, uh, Peter's foreword alone is just worth the cost of the book, and uh, and I agree with that. I mean, I, I think... Well, the rest of the book is, I think, I hope you think is good, but um, uh, Peter's foreword is, is very good, and uh, and you know, I, I I agree with him that the time is for death to die, but I'm I'm not sure that it's going to realistically happen during our lifetimes. I'd like to see that happen, of course, because I think uh, we lose a lot every time someone dies, but uh, but I'm not sure we're, we're quite there yet. That's that's the extreme end of it. It's very interesting because as another philosophy and political science student. Actually, many of the reasons why I got involved in the technological singularity in general and in starting singularityweblog.com in particular were asking those big questions that you're asking. So that's why perhaps I enjoyed your book so much. But let me just give you an example, a very recent example that kind of um, brings forth to me what we're coming up against, what kind of mental attitude people have. So, for example, um, yesterday one of my wife's best friend was getting married, so we were at the wedding party, but the night before was the rehearsal dinner. And after the rehearsal dinner, we were chatting uh, at the dinner table with a bunch of the closest friend of her friend's family, and there was this gentleman who is a marine biologist uh, by trade, um, I think uh, from the University of Michigan, 
And he made a statement something like, first of all, um, working on longevity and life extension technology is a waste of time and money. But secondly, people who work in that field should be shot. Oh, well, that's quite a strong statement, isn't it? Yes, and, and I was, at first I just could not, I could not connect the dots because he did not strike me as somebody very extreme in any way. He's a scientist by trade, a marine biologist, and then he comes up with a statement like that, that anyone who works on longevity is not only wasting resources, but it's so much so that they should be shot. So have you, have you encountered attitudes like that somewhere? And what do we do to change them? I have not encountered that quite that extreme of an argument, but um, <laughs> I have encountered many people who say, who are nervous about the idea of living longer and healthier lives uh, for all sorts of reasons. I mean, usually the, the most popular reason, uh, the, the frequently cited reason uh, that I hear when I'm going around talking about this book is, oh, well, you know, if people didn't die at the same rate as they die now, the earth would become overpopulated. And, you know, what would we do? I mean, th this would be a huge crisis. We don't have enough resources for everyone, and uh, and don't we have enough people already? And so that's that's one of the arguments, which, of course, I, I counter in the book. I don't think that's true at all um, for various different reasons. I mean, on the, on the population, uh, just on the on the growth numbers uh, issue, world population growth rates are actually declining. There's a chart in my book where you can see it's going down uh, like that, and fertility rates are declining. By 2050, the UN predicts that uh, we won't even be replacing ourselves anymore. Fertility rates will be below uh, 2.1, which is what you need for replacement values. Um, but not only that, I mean, there's it's not just the population question. There's also the question of how do we keep the world clean, right? And you know from being at Singularity University that there's all these technologies in development, like synthetic biology and, and, and nanotechnology, that are going to allow us to keep the environment in even better shape than it is today. So there's a, there's many different ways to uh, to come back to that question, but so so that that's one of the one of the knee jerk reactions I typically typically get. Um, it sounds like maybe the person you were talking to just has an ethical uh, objection to it. Like you know, it's just not natural. Humans shouldn't live longer than 80 years. Yeah, uh, we we did uh, discuss many of those issues and the Malthusian argument he made it that the overpopulation Malthusian argument he made, and I kind of utilized many of the arguments in your book oh, to good. kind of argue back to him. And and we, I think I managed to knock them off one by one, but the very last thing that remained in the end was that thing which you also, also mentioned in the book, and that's this sort of Oscar Wildean uh, sort of Dorian Gray syndrome or perception that, that you know, if you defeat death, you're kind of making a Faustian deal of a sort, and, and that, in a way, immortality, if if we can reach that, would be a curse, would not be a blessing. So right. how do we combat, and that's where I failed uh, in, in my argument, how do we engage at that level, I wonder, or convince the other side that it's worthwhile? Well, I think, I think it's difficult uh, because... Throughout history, I mean, death has been part of humanity forever, really, uh, since the very beginning of time. And because, and, and because it causes so much anxiety, uh, we've come up with different stories to convince ourselves that it's not so bad, 
And in fact, if we didn't die, everything would be terrible. And we come up with all these psychological coping mechanisms to convince ourselves that death is good. And we've been doing that for a really long time. And so when we're steeped in that culture, it's difficult, I think, for some people to break free of that and to, to look beyond that and say, no, you know what? We just told ourselves these stories because there, because there was never any chance that we could ever break free of our constraints. But now we're at a point in history that we actually have a chance. We have a chance where we can break free. We know that aging is plastic. We can see from, from the work of all these scientists that it might actually might be possible not only to repair ourselves uh, using our own stem cells, but to maybe even slow down aging. And, uh, and I think, so I think it's, it's not easy to counter, uh, the cultural objection because it's so deeply ingrained. Uh, maybe the first step to doing that is to just point it out. You know, like, we don't have to turn into vampires to live longer. You don't have to suck people's blood, right? I mean, we've made up those stories that, you know, oh, well, we could live longer, but then we'd just be evil. No, we can live longer and we don't have to be evil. And that's, that's the new paradigm. And so, Getting, getting people there, I think, is tough, as you point out. So is that the goal behind your, your book, in a way, to change that cultural, in perception, uh, that cultural perception, that sort of knee-jerk reaction of people to immediately sort of pull back and, and try and resist it? Absolutely. That was one of the big reasons why I wrote the book, to, to first inform people that all of this stuff is even happening. Because honestly, if you're a busy professional, you're a busy person, you might not have time to be reading the science news. I mean, maybe you see, you know, the Wall Street Journal, I love that newspaper because they really report on all the big advancements. I mean, a, a few weeks ago when uh, a brand new uh, windpipe was grown for a man who was living in Iceland uh, because he had cancer, they made a, they did a 3D scan, uh, created a uh, brand new windpipe for him, seeded it with his own stem cells, took out his diseased cancerous windpipe, put in the new one, They and he's completely completely cured. I mean, we grew a brand new organ for this guy, we repaired him, and now he has an entire lifetime left. And that was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. But, you know, it's like you read it, you put, you're like, wow, that's amazing. You put it down, and you might forget about it. And there's many, many of those stories that build up over time. And so I wanted to have it all in one place so people could look at it and go, wow, when you take a look at all of these advances together, it's very clear that we're going to be able to repair humans really, really well in the future and extend our life and health expectancy. Uh, and then, once you realize that, that forces a change in paradigm, right? I mean, it forces you to sort of think, sit back and go, wow, okay, things are going to change. And so, and so I think, I also think that it's time that we start thinking about those things so that we're not caught off guard and you know, like one day where we just wake up and go, oh, my God, things have really changed, right? I mean, I, I think we need we need to get ready for it. So um, let me ask you this then. Um, perhaps the toughest uh, dimension of, of culture is religion, uh, the, the, the deepest embedded, the most ingrained in, into uh, of psyche or... Uh, what do you think? So first, let me let me backtrack and, and ask you: Are you religious yourself, in any way? Oh, I I consider myself agnostic. I'm not uh, I'm not part of any type of organized religion, but I'm not uh, I I wouldn't rule out the idea of God. So uh, so I'm guess I guess a little bit in the middle. Mm -hmm. 
interesting. I'm always surprised by the answer I get from the people I interview. So it's, it's, uh, it's very interesting. Um, okay. And, and then taking it to the general picture, how do you think that all those changes in, in, uh, growing artificial organs and life extension beyond a hundred or 150 or even more years would impact the, the, the major religions of the world? Right. So this was the most fascinating chapter of the book for me to write because it was so surprising. You know, I started out with the premise that uh, as we move further and further away from death, we'll become less religious because the afterlife might, you know, it won't be in our at top of mind anymore. We won't be seeing people die like quite so often. So we, we won't be thinking about the afterlife so much. So maybe that will reduce the role of religion in our lives. And uh, when I started digging into the data and talking with religious scholars and, and looking at like what happened last time when we extended life expectancy from 43 to 80. Uh, and it turns out that that's not the case at all. And in fact, it turns out it's not the case that we become more scientific. We become less religious, which has just absolutely floored me. That shocked me. I mean, I, in fact, I didn't even believe it. So that chapter actually took me much longer to write because I just didn't believe what I was finding. Uh, I went everywhere. I talked to everyone. I, you know, it's like I'm calling the people at the, the Pew Foundation as a huge uh, research division on religion. I talked to them many, many times and, and read a lot of their work. And uh, it turns out that humans over time have had a really constant rate of about 90% of the world is religious, and it kind of just stays there. The only time it ever dipped was the, during uh, the, the reign of communism, when uh, the communists absolutely outlawed religion, and then it went down to 70%. The world was only 70% religious at that time, and then as communism started to fall, it went right back up. And, you know, there's a few different theories for why that happens. You know, there's, there's the biological theory that, well, we're just wired for God. We're wired for spirituality. Our brain just works that way, and we evolve that way. Uh, and then there's other sort of philosophical explanations for it, uh, in terms of it being, you know, important to our psyche and, 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 um, and, and one of the things I didn't realize, I think, when I started out, uh, writing that chapter was the other, because, because I'm not part of an organized religion, I think maybe, uh, was that there's something else to religion besides the afterlife. I mean, it's not just about the afterlife, right? It's not just about heaven and hell. It's also about how do you live your life, right? And what is the purpose of life? I mean, religion really spends a lot of time, most religions, focusing on the purpose. Why are we here? What is good, right? What is good? What is bad? How should you, what is the good life? How do you live your life? And, you know, it turns out that in maybe as we live longer and we have more life, more time where we need guidance in terms of our purpose, Religion could actually potentially become even more important to us as as a guiding factor. So, uh, but but that said, I think religions will have to evolve. Uh, you know, th those that focus too much on the afterlife will eventually become extinct, and other ones will come in to take their place. So, I mean, I think the the religious marketplace, if you will, is an evolving area, and uh, and I think religions will have to change in response to life extension technologies, but they won't go away. We won't see a world with no religion because of science. That's not going to happen. You see, that was one of the most profound sort of 
things that I would take away from your book, I think, because me, I'm, I'm personally an atheist, and, you know, just like uh, you, in a sense, I had this predisposition to believe that as uh, those advanced technologies get more and more into the mainstream and people live longer and longer, and we start taking them for granted, religion would kind of sort of wane away slowly until it disappears completely. But I think you managed to convince me otherwise here in, in your book, and, and that's perhaps the biggest thing that I'll be taking away, that in fact it can coexist with technology, which is kind of very interesting and paradoxical to me. It's yes. counterintuitive, at least to my intuition, counterintuitive um, the outcome. <laughs> yeah, me too. That uh, it really. I spent so much time doing research for that chapter, let me tell you. So, uh, let me ask you this then, um, do you think that the singularity is a religion for geeks, for example, um, like Jerome Lanier sometimes calls it? I think for some geeks it is, yes, and I say that in the book. I, that's not to say that everybody who's involved with the singularity or everybody who's involved in transhumanist, transhumanism is, is religious, because they're not, uh, and, and like to point out that they're not, but there's certain elements, if, you, if you've talked with scholars of religion, religious scholars, uh, uh, and they'll tell you that there's certain key elements that exist uh, that make something a religion. And that's things like uh, there has to be sacred texts, right? Or texts that everybody who's part of the movement reads, right? Um, and so you could say, okay, well, that's that could be like the singularity of near, right? Everybody involved in that movement has read that book and knows everything about that book, right? Um, and then you've got to have certain uh, rituals, things that everybody does, right? Oh, well, everyone takes their vitamin pills. Many of them wear, uh, or everyone who's part of this uh, this religion, if you will, it probably also has a cryonics bracelet because they want to be frozen uh, if if they're if they die, so they can be brought back uh, by the by the transformation. Uh, you know, and there's there's all these different things. I, I go over them in the book. I'm, Trying to remember what the other ones are right now, but there, there's a, a number of characteristics. Uh, oh, they pr the, the presence pr of good and evil. Uh, yeah, good and evil. They know what good is. They know what evil is. They promise transformation. I mean, all of these things exist. Eternal life. Exactly within within the singularity movement, and that's not to say it's a religion, but there are religious elements in it. And some of the people, not all of them, who show up, um, some of them are religious about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, so you just mentioned the, that some people wear um, uh, cryo uh, bracelets. Do you wear one yourself? And no. what do you think of cryopreservation? Uh, because I that was one of the issues that I thought was kind of absent in the book. So I wanted to bring forth. Uh, did you do that on purpose, or yes, yes, it's purposely absent from the book because I think the technology to repair living humans will advance faster than than cryonics technology. I mean, I think we'll be able to build organs, a, a multitude of organs, before we're ever able to bring somebody back from the dead. So I expect to, uh, I'm, I'm hoping that I'll live long enough to live a very long time. <laughs> More than a hundred plus? I hope so. <laughs> Speaking of that then, do you have any tips for the rest of us? Uh, something that you picked up in terms of your daily routine or uh, regimen that you did not do and started doing after completing the research for your book? 
Well, I'll tell you something I discovered that I didn't know before, uh, which helps to motivate me. And uh, that is that when you exercise, you affect your epigenetics. When you, when, you, when you exercise, you actually turn on your longevity genes. And there's been a number of studies that show, uh, take people who don't exercise at all and then put them on an exercise program, and they look at their genes before and after the exercise. And uh, genes that are associated with longevity are turned off in those people, and then after they've been exercising for a while, they're lit right up. And then uh, those are the protector genes. So that's, so I like to say to my friends, you know, the reason to exercise is not to lose weight. The reason to exercise is to turn on your longevity genes so you can be healthier. And, uh, and that helps to motivate me. So that, that's one thing that I discovered. Um, and then the other thing I discovered uh, in going through a lot of the scientific literature on diet and all that kind of stuff is that there doesn't seem to be one type of diet that really works. The only thing that really works is just eating less. You just You really need to be thin and well-nourished. I mean, take your vitamins. And uh, and just don't get fat, <laughs> essentially. So, do you practice uh, calorie restriction yourself? No, that's too difficult. I could never do that. I don't have I don't have the the willpower. But I do try to eat less. I mean, I think about it. I mean, when I'm looking at my plate, I look down and something better be good for me to eat it, or I, or I don't, I'm not going to eat it because I know that those extra calories are so bad for me. You don't have like chocolate urges or something like that, ice cream. <laughs> oh, well, well, dark chocolate isn't so bad for you, is it? <laughs> it is, yeah, in moderation. <laughs> um, and, and how about uh, something else like, I don't know, resveratrol or um, any other things that you might be using now or that you didn't use before? Well, I've always been a red wine drinker, so I guess I've always been on the resveratrol bandwagon. But, you know, the research on that recently has been somewhat depressing because it's yeah, turning yeah. out that uh, it, uh, that compound is not quite as effective as we had all hoped it would be. Um, you know, it's, it's tough to find that magic pill. Yes, indeed. So, um, let me ask you this. Are you optimistic in that case? Because Ray Kurzweil is often criticized for being too optimistic about the future. Um, how, how would you qualify yourself? Because, yeah, let me stop it at that. Well, people have called me optimistic. Uh, but nobody's used it in a critical way, which I, which I'm very happy about because I actually really tried uh, hard to make sure that the book was balanced and based in reality. I don't make any predictions. I think it's very tough to predict when something is going to happen. I know Ray uh, Ray makes a lot of predictions, but um, I, I you know I, science is hard, and you know I can see you know I say in the book, look, we we know that aging is plastic now. We know it can be affected. How long is it going to take for us to be able to do that in humans? I don't. It's hard. It's really hard to do. Uh, growing organs. Well, we've made a few of them really well for humans, and we've had huge progress in animals. Uh, will we be? You know, we've been able to make a rat heart and rat lungs. Will we be able to make a human heart and human lungs? Probably, because the proof of concepts there. It's worked really well with other stuff. But you, you never know how long it's going to take. And uh, and so I try. I'm I'm optimistic, but I'm really I, I'm solidly grounded in reality. You're more of a cautious optimist. Yes, a rational I, optimist. Or a rational optimist, yes. Um, so if I'm 
to push you a little bit to speculate about our chances of um, experiencing and or surviving a technological singular singularity, what would you say they would be? Uh, I'm sorry, can you repeat that? What do you think are our chances of surviving a technological singularity as a species? Uh, well, <laughs> that's, that's, that's tough to answer because the singularity by definition is a time after which we don't know what will happen. Uh, you know, I guess it all depends on how you define species as well. I think humanity will continue to evolve as we have been, uh, and that evolution will speed up, especially as we begin to integrate computers in with our bodies and, uh, and, and, and be able to decode the human code, you know, as, as we reverse engineer ourselves and then re-engineer ourselves, we will change, and but this time we'll be in charge of our evolution. And is that a good thing? I don't know. Uh, but, you know, hopefully it will be. I mean, it, we're, we're self-interested beings. And if, if we continue to follow that ingrained uh, preference, then it should work out for us. So you're not fearful that that may be the end of humanity. In other words, that the quest of immortality that we're pursuing with all those advanced technologies, which may also give birth to artificial intelligence, may eventually lead to our eventual or ultimate demise as a species. No, I'm, I'm not worried about it. I mean, that's I, it is a risk. And uh, I, th I think it's something that a lot of people, smart people right now are thinking about and trying to prepare for, and, and so that's good that we're, that we're there uh, and thinking about it so early. Um, but I think we'll make it through. We've made it through so much already. Sonia, it's been fascinating uh, talking to you today, and we're approaching the end of our interview. So let me ask you, where can people go and learn more about you and your work? Right. So uh, they can go to my personal website, which is my name, so it's... Uh, SoniaArison.com, all one word. Uh, and then, of course, my book can be purchased pretty much at any bookstore, I think, and, uh, and of course, on Amazon.com, which is where I buy a lot of my stuff. <laughs> Excellent. So, if you, in conclusion of our interview, do you have a single thing or a single message that you would like to share or spread among our viewers and listeners today? Yeah, so... Uh, one of the things I was also hoping the book would do would be to spur interest and uh, and activism from people uh, in terms of pushing some of these technologies to move quicker than they otherwise will. Because you know, yes, at some point, I'm I'm almost positive we're going to be able to grow brand new human hearts for people. But will they be ready for me? Will they be ready for you? Uh, I don't know. They might not be if we if we don't really make it a priority, if we don't make human repair a priority and human health a priority. And, and I just, uh, I'd like to see more people pushing for, for human repair technologies and regenerative medicine. And, uh, you know, I hate to use the term anti-aging because it sounds so uh, snake oil-ish, but there really is, a, there's a large uh, number of researchers around the world who are working on slowing down aging, and, and they need help. They need resources. Uh, attention, they, they, you know, support essentially, and uh, and they're not getting enough of it yet. And so we really need everyone, you know, philanthropists and journalists and academics and all of these uh, politicians, 
policymakers to come together and really support this field if uh, if we uh, if we want to be there when it when it happens. Fantastic. So that's by the way one of the points that I had underlined here in your book uh, towards the end, and I'd like to read that paragraph if I may. Uh, where you say, we are at the cusp of a radical change in social consciousness. Humanity is finally in a position to shed its acceptance of disease and death and instead launch a true offensive against it. That is the good news, but it comes with a qualifier. And then, to skip a little, much, a little after that, you end up saying, the longevity revolution depends on the strong and sustained efforts of a diverse set of people who refuse complacency. Right. So I, we can't I, sit back and expect it to happen. It's, it, it might happen later on if we sit back, but, uh, but we might not be around for it. So we really can't afford to be complacent. We really need to push hard for, uh, for this research to move ahead. Sonia Arison, thank you very much for being on Singularity 101 today with us. Thanks, Nicole. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Sonia.